Please remain standing and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse 10. Genesis chapter 11 and verse 10, hear now God's word. These are the generations, generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arkpakshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arkpakshad 500 years, and he had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Aber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Aber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Aber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And, and Aber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ru, and Peleg lived after he fathered Ru 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug, and Ru lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor, and Serug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When <clears throat> Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah, and Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans, and Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would take and use your word, make it effective in our hearts and minds. Instruct us, but Lord, more than anything, build us up in the faith. Make our hearts strong in the truth of the gospel. And help us to see that even from yet another genealogy, your word speaks to us. It is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword. And it never returns void. And so we trust in that promise today. Use your word in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, For those who haven't been with us, we're working our way through the book of Genesis. For those who have been with us, yes, another genealogy. And if you remember, three weeks, two weeks ago, we had the first part of this genealogy, and then we had the Tower of Babel account. That's kind of wedged in here, and we looked at how that fit in, and now we look at this last part of the genealogy, which focuses in on Abram. The sermon could have easily been called, God Does Impossible Things, and this is because we see in this passage that there appear to be a number of impossible things to overcome. Now, when we think of God doing the impossible, we often think of his omnipotence, his power to do anything, but it's more than that. 
whether we think of his creative power in making all things or his ability to give life when he's given life to us or his execution of a global flood, all of these things are mighty and powerful acts. But it's more than just his power, it's his wisdom. The way that God does things isn't how you and I would do them. You and I, well, as Presbyterians, we'd first form a committee, uh, but you and I would not write the story of redemption in the way that he has done it. And Isaiah 55 comes to mind, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts." In this genealogy and the brief narrative that follows, that we see God is continuing his plan. He is accomplishing his plan of redemption, and he is very intentional about what he is doing. But we see in this passage that he's going to use some unlikely suspects. And scripture is full of these. And this gives me comfort and hope. Because I am an unlikely suspect. I, am, I don't have the pedigree uh, that I wish I had or the abilities or the gifts or the whatever to, to be what I think I want to be. But God uses people that we would least likely to expect. You think of David. Remember the story? Samuel comes to anoint a king and Jesse brings out his sons, the oldest, thinking these are the ones and Go through everybody. Didn't even think of David out there watching the sheep. I mean, David is, in essence here, the run of the litter, and it doesn't even cross Jesse's mind. And yet, God raises him up to be king. You think of Peter, the salty and coarse fisherman. Peter would not pass our personality tests or our psychological tests to qualify for leadership advancement in our current world. Let's just say that. Now, you see, we have the privilege of seeing the other side of the, the impact of the gospel in these people's lives. We know what God has done through them. But let's remember who they were and where they came from. Remember Jonah? He was a coward on the run. Remember Saul before he was Paul? A murderous zealot who wreaked terror on the Christian community. We could go not only through Scripture but also through history and see that God doesn't necessarily need those who were voted most likely to succeed in their high school yearbook. In fact, he often uses many others. And instead, in this passage, we have Sarai, who is barren, and Abram, who is a pagan moon worshiper from Ur. How would the seed of promise come from a woman who is barren? How would God be glorified by calling a pagan idol worshiper from lower Mesopotamia to come up to Canaan? And these questions really aren't that dissimilar from the questions in our own lives. Why did God allow this to happen to me? Why didn't God provide this when I needed it? Why doesn't God do something about this person or this situation that has caused me so much grief and pain? And how will God use this for anything good? Have you plugged your this into those questions? Does that resonate with anyone? But we need to think about how God works. And as we look through Scripture, we get a picture of the economy of the kingdom of God 
and it doesn't look like our economy. 2 Corinthians 6.8, Paul writes, We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. That is a snapshot of how God works. Philippians 1.21, For to me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain? Mark 10, And Jesus called them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. John twelve twenty five. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Why do I read so much scripture? To show you this is not some idea that I came up with. This is not some newfangled approach of how to look at things, but this is repeated throughout scripture. That the economy of God is upside down in our perspective. It's backwards often. Paul puts it in a nutshell in 1 Corinthians 1 verses 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast, in the, might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. The point is, God often does things that blow our circuits. He often does things that... That, that, that turn our lives upside down. They don't make sense. It's backwards. It's, it's strange. And he does all of this to demonstrate his glory and his power. Don't think of this in terms of a human being showing off. God is not sinfully vain. It is because of who he is, because he is God, that he is able to show His power and glory in a holy way. It is because He is most glorious, most holy, most powerful, most wonderful, most able to save, that He is worthy of all of our praise and honor and glory and power, that He works in such ways to teach us this truth. Why is it upside down? Why is it backwards? Why doesn't life make sense? Whether we're looking at Sarai and Abram or we're looking in our own lives, it is because God is going to put on display His power and glory in and through you. God works in ways that are consistent with His character to demonstrate that He is the only one who can save. He is the only one we should treasure. And He is the only one worthy of our eternal praise and honor. And so beginning then with this genealogy in verses 10 to 26, let's look at how this unfolds. Now the genealogy, nothing really stands out. We've seen some others and there are little snippets, little, little stories that appear that give us something to kind of sink our teeth into. I mean, you know what it's like reading a genealogy in your quiet time. You're thinking, Lord, how do I get anything out of this? Nothing seems to come out. It looks like a list of person X lived Y number of years and fathered Z and it's like a formula. 
And it is a formula, almost. It comes out looking just like a formula. The author, Moses, is doing this with intentionality to show intentionality. He is showing that God is up to something. Before we look at the specifics, let me explain why. The intentionality that God is showing us is to display His sovereign rule and power over all things. Even things that look like they're bad or unjust or broken or wrong. Even things that are bad and unjust and broken and wrong. God is taking all of these things and using them to accomplish His purpose to make all things new. God is showing us through His Word, even a genealogy, His preordained plan to work in a specific way for His own purposes and glory. And it's not only true in this genealogy, it's true in your life. Now how do we see that? First, in this list, there are ten generations. We've seen this already, the numbers seven and ten, both significant in Hebrew uh, writing, scripture, culture, number of completeness. And so this is a complete uh, genealogy, meaning that it represents a complete period. It doesn't have everything in it, but it represents the entire period from Noah or Shem down to Abraham showing us the completeness of his plan. Noah, Shem, Peleg, Terah, and we get to Abram, that he has paid this path of redemption. One man now out of many nations that God preordained to work through to accomplish his plan for his glory. We've seen God go wide, and now we see him come back narrow again in on Abram. Another sign of the intentionality is that the genealogy follows the same pattern as the one that we saw in Genesis 5. If you remember that one, it took us from Adam to Noah. So now we have two genealogies that are of the same pattern in this book that connect us all the way from Adam to Abraham. Again, they're open, meaning that they don't have every single person that ever lived, but that number 10 is used to show that they completely represent that period. Both have tenant generations. Both use the same wording and the same pattern. And both end with the announcement of three sons with the elect son listed first, not the oldest, Noah and Abram in the two cases. Both genealogies, as I've said, are open. They represent the whole line. They were intentionally written this way. And then of interest as well, the seventh figure in both of these genealogies is a significant person, Enoch. Enoch walked with God and he was not. Remember Enoch. And in this list, Abra, who was the father of the Hebrews, that's where we get the word Hebrew from. So both number sevens are significant. All of those details are given to show us God's purposefulness and his sovereign administration over his plan of redemption. So yes, we can read through these things and wonder why are they even included in Scripture? But a little little study, a little poking, a little prodding, we can see that there is a reason, there is purpose in it. Now, it's hard for us at times, maybe often, to accept that God is sovereign and rules over all. Now, we like it when things are going in our favor, but we don't like it when things are not. And where we don't like it in particular is His choosing or electing those he does. But this is not because God is unfair. We know that God is fair and just. That's who he is. It's his character. The problem is we have such a small view of God that we think this seems unjust. 
The truth of this is clearly taught in Romans 9, where Paul writes, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The scriptures say to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. These are hard words. And yet, these are gracious and good words, because they show us God's great love for us. It's not that we got our act together and said, Look, Pick me, pick me. But God in His great mercy and love, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It is because of who He is that His acts are never unjust, that He can elect and work in whatever way He wills, and that it is good and right for Him to do so, because of who He is. And this is good news for us, because very few of us in this room, I'm guessing, are descendants of Abram. We're all from Japheth's line, probably, or Ham's line. Very few of us, I'm guessing, are coming from the line of Shem through Abraham. You and I have been grafted in because of God's grace, His loving election to include us as the children of promise. Paul again captures this in that same chapter of of Romans chapter 9. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Praise God. It's the promise. It's not our ethnicity, it's not our lineage, it's not what country we were born in or what family we were born in. We can all thank God for His sovereign grace in our lives to bring each of us to hear the gospel and respond in faith. After the genealogy then comes this description, a short narrative of Terah's descendants in verses 27 to 32. And beginning in chapter 12 next week, we're going to uh, see the pace of the history in Genesis slow down rapidly. So these first 11 chapters cover a huge swath of time. Now in chapter 12, we're going to begin to focus on one person, Abraham. Abram, as he's known at this point, before his name is changed. So this is merely an introduction to the players that we will see. And it only introduces us to a few. And I want us to look particularly at verse 30. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. What an incredible and sobering piece of information to include here. Why did God do it? It didn't say that Sarai had been unable to have children, that they decided not to have children, but rather she was barren. She was unable to have children. Her womb was unable to conceive. And so we have to ask the question, how was Abram going to have a descendant to bring the promise to fulfillment? He's the line of promise. God promised a redeemer. Genesis 3.15, how is this ever going to happen? And of course, that's the question we should be asking. And this is where we go back to the beginning where we say, His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are so much higher. Maybe even better, let's peek ahead and see what actually happens. In Genesis 18, 
we read of the account where Abraham and Sarah are told they're going to have a child. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. You hear what that's saying, right? She's beyond menopause. So not only had she been unable to have children, now everything has shut down and she is called old. I mean, it repeats it here. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? There is the big you know, spotlight shining right there on that statement. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh, because God knows. Is anything too hard for the Lord? That is the question he asked them, and it's the question that we have to ask ourselves. And we find the answer here in Genesis 11. What seems impossible in Genesis 11, we're going to see by Genesis 19 and 20, it is quite possible for all things are possible with God. Jeremiah declares it in his prayer to God in Jeremiah 32:17. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. It's hard for me not to sing that because I'm so accustomed to singing that. You recognize the song that that's from. Nothing is too difficult for thee. Uh, over and over. Nothing is too hard. Nothing is impossible. He takes the seemingly impossible and does them to show us His great power and glory so we will trust Him. So we will trust Him. This is not a vain show-off. The whole point is that we would trust Him because our hearts are constantly wondering. Our hearts are constantly putting confidence in other things. And He is saying over and over again, yet your circumstances are screaming at you, don't trust me. Your circumstances are screaming at you that your life is over, that everything's wrong, that it will never be redeemed. Look at me and trust me because I can do anything. Trust me. That's what He's saying. And the point of all of this is that we would trust Him, that we would believe who He is, what He has done, and what He has promised to do for us. That's the fight for faith every one of us has in front of us every day of our lives. When every circumstance in your life is screaming, impossible, or God can't love you anymore now that you've done this, or thought this, or said that, that your life is screaming that that nothing can ever be good again now that this has happened, or this season is over, that nothing could ever heal the damage that has been done by this experience. Whatever it is that you're up against, fight for faith that nothing is too difficult for God. He has, He does, and He will keep all of His promises. And one of the best examples of this truth is found in the life of Abram, soon to be Abraham. We'll look at him in the coming weeks uh, as the, the next 12 or 13 chapters unfold his life. But let's remember where Abraham came from. You remember Noah, right? Noah was righteous before God. Or Enoch. Enoch walked with God. You could see why God maybe selected them. That's not the case with Abram. Abram was called by God in grace because he was not a man of pedigree who lived righteously or who in our eyes deserved it. He worshipped a false god or false gods. We'll come to see that later on. But God, rich in mercy, according to His perfect plan, called Abram out of Ur 
and saved him by grace through faith. Hebrews 11 looks back at this and states the following, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He trusted God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, just like you and me. We're not saved by our works, by our good deeds, by our good efforts, or even our good intentions. We are saved by the sovereign grace of God. And by faith, you and I too will reach that city whose designer and builder is God, where He will make all things right. No more sin, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears. A city where everything will be as it should be, and we will be forever whole, living in perfect fellowship with the One who's made us. God's promises sometimes seem impossible. The ones to Abraham certainly did. But God delivers in a mighty way to show us, as we'll see, that in Christ you and I could be counted as heirs of the promise. That we could sing with truth and confidence, Father Abraham had many sons and many sons, and I am one of them, and so are you, because we're children of the promise. The promise is fulfilled, even though from a human perspective, Abraham's line should have ended with Sarah's barrenness. Listen again to Hebrews 11. Therefore from one man, Abraham, and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the immeasurable or the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Look up at the stars. Try and count them. Look out at the sea and the beach and the sand. Too many grains grains of sand, more than we can imagine. And yet they tell a story of a promise fulfilled. You and I, by faith in Christ, are sons and daughters of the King of Kings. For any here who today who have yet to trust in Christ, hear me. Come, believe in the Redeemer, Jesus our Savior. Faith in Him doesn't earn righteousness any more than your good deeds do. Faith receives righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness that is accounted to you or credited to your account. Stop laboring. Stop trying to be good enough because you aren't and you can't. None of us can be good enough. But instead, receive the free gift by faith that will set you free. And you fellow believers, Christians, hear me today. Continue to believe. God keeps His promises. Even when things look upside down or backwards or all messed up or unredeemable or hopeless or whatever word we can assign to it, God never fails. Nothing is too difficult for Him. Let's pray. Father, that we would believe that, that Your might and Your power displayed through Your awesome works throughout history would declare to us most clearly your love for us in Jesus on the cross, whose death and resurrection has overcome sin and death for us. Lord, may we look to these and see that your promises never fail, that nothing is too difficult for you. And would you reorient us to trust you completely, 
even when things don't make sense, even when things don't line up, even when things seem unredeemable, would you cause us to trust you in the midst of all of that, to know that you are good, that you're working all things together for our good and for your glory. Build our faith and strengthen us that we might live as lights shining in a dark world, that others might see our good works and glorify you in heaven, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.